Harper Academic Calling, Trish O'Kane. I guess I should be honest from the very beginning that Trish O'Kane's Burning to Change the World is one of my most favorite books from our 2024 publishing schedule. And yes, I know that it's only February, but very nearly March. And yes, I like it because I learned about birds in a very accessible way where I felt like I learned science, but I wasn't overwhelmed by science. I confess my brain is not a science brain, so this was very useful to me. But what really excites me about Trisha's book is how it talks about education, teaching and learning, and student engagement. I'm excited by the pedagogy that is behind it and runs through it. And here, I guess I have to leave somewhat a cliffhanger because otherwise I just won't stop going on about it. This book can help faculty teach more meaningfully. It can help students see how they can become engaged citizens of their college, cities, and towns. It provides a pathway for colleges and universities to engage with school communities in their neighborhoods to create a culture of learning across age groups. But a tidbit I'll give you is something Trish herself says about teaching that I have been thinking a lot about since we had this conversation earlier this month. She said, in teaching, our students are always watching us. They want to know how to be in the world. They want to know how to be in a troubled world. How do you be a human? How do you be happy? How do you make a difference? How to be. Burning to Change the World gives both faculty and students an amazing blueprint for how to be in their communities and how these skills can benefit the communities in which they inhabit and how that genuinely benefits everyone. I hope you love reading this book as much as I have. Trisha Kane's Burning to Change the World is available now in hardcover from Echo. It's also available as an ebook and an audiobook. Joining us is Trisha Kane, author of the book Burning to Change the World. Trish, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome, Kim. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. Um, so I guess we should start out by having our listeners get some background. So if you could tell us why birds and how birds became this wonderful book. Well, it started with a terrible disaster, Kim. Um, I was living in New Orleans teaching at Loyola University, teaching journalism when Hurricane Katrina hit. I wasn't prepared for it. I hadn't thought about environmental issues. Um, our house was destroyed. Our neighborhood was destroyed and many people in our neighborhood drowned. So afterwards, I was really kind of stunned. I'd been a human rights journalist for years and really just focused on homo sapiens. I'd never paid attention to birds before Katrina. But after the immediately after the hurricane, I started thinking about how I didn't know anything about wetlands or the levees or why it had happened. And so that's how it began. I, I moved back to New Orleans to teach. Um, I had to move to another area. And the first morning I woke up in the city was about three months after Katrina. The city was, you know, pretty empty and smelly and horrible. I woke up because I heard a clicking, a clicking in the yard. And I looked outside the window and there was this gorgeous red cardinal. And, and I knew it was a cardinal. I didn't know anything about the bird, but I wanted to run outside and hug that bird. I mean, you're in a city that has been destroyed. 1400 people dead. A lot of people have gone and are never coming back. And it's quiet in a big city in the morning. And here's this creature. And I realized, oh my God, it's alive. The birds are alive. They didn't all die because a lot of animals drowned. And so that's how it started. 
And, and, you know, then I went off the deep end as anyone who's a birder who's listening will understand what happened to me <laughs> afterwards. But why birds? They're there. They're easy to see whether you're in a big city or in the countryside. I mean, they're everywhere. Yeah. And I think a lot of people who come to your book, maybe they all did not live in uh, New Orleans during Katrina, but we've all just been through another trauma with certainly um, in 2020 and 2021 and, and still to some extent um, with COVID. Collectively, the number of people that were able to see and experience and perhaps think about birds for the for the first time, really, maybe for many, many people it, within the last four years. You know, birds are something that people are noticing again. And again, because of a, a collective trauma, they seem to kind of go hand in hand in some way in noticing sort of nature's small things. Yes, I, I thought about that a lot during COVID. And then I started reading the news stories about many people getting into birding or watching the animals in their yard or their city and noticing things. And it also with my students, I was teaching during COVID long distance on Zoom and everybody, all my birding students were going out birding in their neighborhood instead of here in Burlington. And we would meet online and they would share what they were seeing. And it was so much more important to them than before the pandemic. Like they really lived to see these birds because they cheered them up. And that's exactly what happened to me after Katrina. And then I wanted to know, well, how does this cardinal survive and what does it do? And how can I keep it here in my yard? And how can I help the cardinal? And then I put up feeders and, you know, once you put up feeders, you're, you're sunk, right? <laughs> you, yeah. I have to, I have to say that I, I truly love your book and I, I love your book for a lot of reasons because I, I think it is a very flexible book in a lot of ways in, in the ground that you cover. I expected to read a book about birds. I I didn't expect all of the stuff that came in addition to it. And that's one of the things that I think this book is, is so wonderful and so lovely. And so one of the things that you did post-Katrina is you went back to school for a PhD. And seemingly the, the pivot moment for this for you came with a distinction in two questions that are that are existential questions, right? The first question was that you had been asking yourself, and I think most people do for a certain time in their life is what should I do? And that question then became, how should I be? And I think while sort of the shift is perhaps the result of a traumatic experience and going through a traumatic experience and, and wondering what changes and differences perhaps you, you can make and, and should make, why was it a significant way for you to reconsider um, a doing question? Because it is it is a question kind of based on existence and, and how you are in the world. So why was it significant that that shift happened for you? Well, it's a deep question. Uh, it's a question I wouldn't have understood really before yeah. Katrina. I wouldn't have asked. I would have thought that's so weird, right? Let's just yeah. do stuff, right? Because, you know, I was a journalist writing a lot of stories and investigating human rights and massacres in Central America and, and then civil rights in the South in Alabama and, and doing things that were very, very important and still are important to me. But when Katrina happened, it, it really just it sort of flattened me because I realized I've been doing all these things and I still destroyed a place because when I stood in my home, having to breathe through an expensive respirator mask because of all the junk we left behind 
And when water enters your home and you realize how many toxins you've bought and that you use every day, right? I never thought about this. And when I saw the destruction and we live next near Lake, right, you know, blocks from Lake Pontchartrain, and I thought about the fish, I thought about the pollution, I saw it in the water. And I thought, oh my God, I did all this stuff for years and I've written two books and I, you know, I have two master's degrees and I speak Spanish fluently and all this stuff, but what, what was I doing? I, I destroyed the place temporarily, at least where I lived. I helped to destroy it because I didn't know what a wetland was. And I didn't know anything about the place itself and the geography and the geology, never even thought about it. So I thought, just running out and doing things. I, I can't, first of all, I was paralyzed and depressed. And then second of all, that just seemed so wrong because one of my personal credos is do no harm. And I realized at that moment, I've done a lot of harm, you know, driving. And I had chosen to live 20 minutes from the university, a commute. So I was driving all the time. I mean, I just hadn't thought about any of my environmental choices because I hadn't thought about the environment. And I'm a Californian by birth. You're 16, if you're middle or upper class, you gotta get a car, it's your birthright. Your life is your car, right? So I'd never thought about any of these issues. So I was like, this doing thing, I gotta stop and think. And I think during COVID people can relate to this too. Like, what am I learning here? What are the waters of Katrina trying to teach me? And like, what was the microbe trying to teach us? And so, when I started to think about that, then I start and then I started teaching again in New Orleans and my students, they were wonderful at Loyola, but they were very distressed and logically, right? Going back to college in a city that was on its knees. Many of them were New Orleanian. Um, and it was, it was hard. I mean, every single day in class, somebody cried or I cried. I mean, I didn't cry very often. I tried to really be strong. But I realized they were watching me. And, and I realized in teaching, our students are always watching us. They want to know how to be in the world. They want to know how to be in a troubled world. How do you be a human? How do you be happy? How do you make a difference? How to be? And, and so the teacher, you know, just watching how you move your body, what choices you make. And so I really started thinking about teaching, not just in terms of lesson plans and homework, but what am I teaching my students if I'm a frantic, hyper busy person who doesn't have time to sit in a park and talk to them or listen to them, sit on a bench and watch the ducks together. And that's what I started to do in New Orleans. And so that was part of how to be, I think about that a lot as a teacher. Um, and I wanted to be more grounded in my place and I wanted to do no harm. And I didn't know how to do that. And so I went back to school at 45 to get a PhD, you know, sounds kind of crazy. It was crazy, but it was wonderful. And I, it gave me a lot of time to think. One of the parts of this book that really spoke to me is, is when you talk about teaching and learning. I, I come from a, a teaching and learning background. So I was very, very interested in the education bits of this book, of which there are many and, and a lot. And one of the things that really stood out to me was your dissertation project. I think one of the things that is interesting to me about your dissertation project is that it was in the sciences, but the project itself, you describe it in the book as a four-action-based research intervention. It, it, it involves citizen science, uh, ornithological research, envi environmental history, environmental education, 
and community organizing. And what I th- oh, and there it is. Oh, for the for the listener, because you're not you're not seeing this, but there is a bound dissertation manuscript in front of my face, which is wonderful, wonderful to see. And what was really impressive to me about this dissertation project from a pedagogical point of view was how different it was from how we sort of typically imagine a dissertation project to be where you are sort of shut in a library by yourself and you are in conversation with books and eventually, you know, five or so people will read it and they will talk to you about it. But sort of that's the extent of the conversation. But this was really a project designed with intention and intention around putting you in a place and having you get involved in that place. So what was that, as a as a PhD student, I guess, first, um, what was that like as a process? What kind of benefits do you see from that sort of academic work as a faculty member? Well, Kim, if you had known me, see, I just graduated in 2015, all right? So I'm only eight years out of the PhD. Um, I graduated at 51 years old, and I almost didn't make it. I mean, it was really hard. And and I think of everyone who is ABD, right? For me, that's all but dead. I mean, I was <laughs> dead when I finished, right? It was really hard, as you know. But I didn't have a choice. I had borrowed the money to go back to school. We'd lost our home in New Orleans. We didn't have any money. We moved to Madison. So I have to do this no matter what. <laughs> I just have to. And I have to get a job. I was extraordinarily lucky, Um Through a Google search, I was sitting in a New Orleans cafe, very depressed, wondering what I was going to do with my future. And I started Googling around. And I think I Googled something like activist, PhD advisor, environment, something like that. Jack Kloppenberg's name came up. He's an environmental sociologist in Madison. And I emailed him. And a week later, I was on the phone with him. And he said, you know, just get in, you have to get in, but get up here and I will help you. And Jack, um, I couldn't have done the dissertation the way it was structured. As you said, it was very interesting. It, It was activist oriented. It's a methodology called participatory research. I can't even remember what it's called anymore, but it's in, you're in the community and there's a community goal and you're trying to help meet that goal at the same time as you are kind of researching yourself for your own biases and anal- analyzing what you're doing as you do it. So so it's not an easy methodology, but it's extremely rewarding. And if it weren't for Jack and then the committee I set up, which was an extraordinary group of people, I couldn't have done it. So I first, you know, if you're a PhD student out there listening your PhD advisor, I mean, they're God. They're so important to pick the right person. And I picked the right person and he helped me set that up. It was a, a fluke. I had no clue when I got to graduate school how I was going to do it. I had no idea what I was going to write about. I didn't know about the birds or the children's program or the whole thing. I just knew I needed to get out of New Orleans and start over. And this would give me a few years to clear my head and figure something out with the environment, at least learn what a wetland was, right? So I took wetland ecology. I took all the ecology classes I could and pieced together this kind of odd PhD, which turned out to be a fantastic, fantastic experience. And then it was at UW-Madison, which just is a giant candy store for science. I mean, when I looked at the course catalog, I I want to take all of those science classes. So I'm going there, right? And then I had the advisor 
And there are lots of wonderful professors across the country who do this kind of work and who supervise this, this kind of dissertation or PhD. It's increasingly popular because you can make a difference in your community and really connect to your community. And one of the things that you talk about that you learned as a result of this process is that being a citizen of a place matters. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why you think that's important, not just for graduate students doing research, but also for undergraduates and also thinking about the program that you created while you were at uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison. If you could talk about sort of how that program also helps you and helps college students sort of get that to middle school and elementary school students about why being a citizen of their place matters. Well, you know, again, back to that kind of epiphany moment in Katrina standing on, literally standing on a mound of goop and ruined stuff. I realized, you know, I'm a, I'm a journalist. I've lived all these places, but I've never really put my foot feet on the ground. I've been traveling through them, gathering stories but I didn't know what was in the soil or what soil was even made of or what difference did it make or how did the water flow through my neighborhood? I knew nothing about it. And, and that was my goal going back. But then also citizen of a place, I started thinking about how I'd lived in, you know, Nicaragua, Mexico, Nicaragua, Guatemala. I was in Central America 10 years. And I was a journalist. I was observing. I was definitely involved. I cared about the issues, but I wasn't participating in public meetings because I couldn't. I wasn't a citizen. And then when I moved to Madison and started studying birds and discovered that birds in the park where I went across the street from my house, that these birds, um, the city wanted to develop the park further and build all kinds of stuff and, and that their homes were endangered. And then I was like, well, what do I do? I have to go to a local meeting. And that that first neighborhood association meeting I went to was really a huge lesson for me and, and very important because it was just a small group of people in a room and, you know, talking about mundane, what you think are mundane things, but really are the stuff of life. Like, should this sidewalk go here or there? And, you know, how do we improve this park? And I realized, wow, I have to be a citizen of this place if I want to protect this place. You know, working for the United Nations or writing for the New York Times, all those things were important, you know, but I can't save these birds in this park and help them unless I go to these meetings every month and city council and parks commission and all this other stuff. And so that was the first time in my life in my mid 40s that I really put my foot on the ground. And I think, you know, local politics and getting involved locally is so important. And so my students in my program today, I really try to create that experience for them. For example, yesterday, so the program I started in Madison is the same program I run right now at the University of Vermont for the Rubenstein School. And I'm really lucky to have the program here because um, University of Vermont really supports, encourages service learning for students. So it's an experiential learning course. So every Wednesday we go to this school. We were there yesterday for the first time this year. I pair my students, each one of them with a fourth or fifth grader. All semester they're paired together. And for two to five in the afternoon, we run, scream, climb trees. We're outside and we run about three miles from the school in a wetland. It's about a mile. So it's, a, it's, a, it's a, but the whole circuit's like three miles. And so my students just yesterday on the first day, 
they're, they don't live in this neighborhood, but they live in Burlington. Most of my students aren't from Burlington, but the children are. And my students, by walking with this child for three hours or running with them or whatever, start learning about this place. And they start learning about issues through the, through the kid that affect this place. And if they don't vote or they don't participate, they're just here you know, for four years and then they leave. But if they want to impact that child's life or the school or the education system, then they need to go to school board meetings. They need to read the local news or at least listen to it or on a podcast or radio or whatever form of media. Otherwise, they're like me. They're just passing through. And so I try to recreate. And because the school allows us to and the parents trust us and the, and the superintendent is a wonderful person. He has his twin girls in my program. Second year they've been in there. They're fantastic. So my students learn in my neighborhood where I live, where my program's located, how to be citizens of a place. And um, some of them become very passionate and go testify before the city council or the, or the school board about how important outdoor education is for kids and outdoor play because kids spend way too many hours sitting in front of screens inside and it's affecting their health, seriously affecting their health. So my students get fired up about this and they go to meetings and, and they start to use the research and the things they're learning in class, plus the experience of walking with the kid and hearing what their life's like. They take that and they try to change, we're trying to change policy. Yeah. And something else that these conversations also highlight for perhaps the college students in the program is that conservation and nature and birding and working with these elementary school kids, it also is a kind of social justice work, especially if you think about sort of discrepancy and inequalities in terms of access to nature, even, you know, looking around your neighborhood and, and thinking about, you know, well, who who is in this park? Who is using this park? Who is not using this park? And why why might that be? And, and birds, for all of these experiences, birds are kind of the gateway into these bigger, bigger issues. So I'm wondering, how do your students react or interact kind of with the with the social justice elements that built into these concepts as well of, of the program, but also of their experiences with the elementary school st students that they're paired with? Well, that is really, really important to me because I learned, you know, I'm not from a cold climate. I grew up really pretty much in tropical climes, Southern California and then Central America and then the Deep South. And when I moved to Madison, of course, the first winter was horrific, 100 inches of snow, the worst in a century. I thought I was going to die, but I survived and now I love winter. But if you're birding outside in winter, you need some serious gear. And the kids in Madison at first, and the same thing happens here every winter in Vermont, some of the kids do not have you know, $100 smart wool undershirts or $25 smart wool socks. In my neighborhood and the school where we work, it's a mixed income and a lot of kids from new American families and some families coming from war zones, refugee families. Um, and so it's a real spectrum in terms of economics, super rich in culture and in languages. But my students, one of the first things some of them say, and have said in past years, when they come in February, and we start the program and the kids are walking outside in the snow with cotton socks or without a good jacket. And I've had students say in class, why aren't they dressed? What, what about their parents? And I said, OK, it's time for a little reality check here. I want you to make um, your clothing list for today with the price tag of everything that you're wearing on a winter day in Vermont 
right? And I mean, I do it myself and I put it on the board. It's usually around 600 bucks. Okay, then that, and I've had students just completely shocked when they make their list. And then I say, well, let's look at minimum wage. And some of our kids, their parents are cashiers at the local grocery store. Well, some of the students work at the local grocery store. They know how much you make. It's not very much. Um, and then they start adding up the family budget and they realize, oh, because a lot of my students have ski passes and they're up in stow. Not all of them. I don't mean to stereotype in and, um, you know, they want to make the world a better place, but that's a real, it's really shocking to them. So that's the social justice part of it. And then they do clothing drives um, and get clothes. And we've several years in a row brought a ton of great clothes, including yesterday. I had a car, half the car was, the back of the car was full of bags from my, the UVM Ornithology Club collected really good, you know, you gently used ski wear and we took it to the school. So the kids have really warm jackets, really warm gloves. That's just one example of social justice. The other that's very important to me is racism. And racism is an environmental issue. I mean, look at how many Black people in this country, the police shoot every year, kill. It's a war. It's like, it's a war zone just because of the color of their skin. And we have kids of color in our program. Um, so I think, what am I doing? I'm teaching these kids to run around in our neighborhood with binoculars and go poking around and climb trees. What if somebody calls the police on? And we have white people in the neighborhood. My students notice it. It's happened a couple of times, even someone yelling at one of our kids of color, not at the white kids, people staring at the kids. Like, what are they doing here? Well, they live here. It's their part too. So, yeah. so my students have to read about implicit bias. They have to do implicit bias tests and they read two books by black ornithologists or black birders. One is called uh, Bird Brother. Super recommend this book. It's by Rodney Stott, who is a falconer. Beautiful book. He's from DC. And the other one is Dr. Drew Lanham's um, The Home Place. Uh, I think it's A Colored Man's Affair with Nature, something like that beautiful book about him growing up in South Carolina. And so I try to use, I use literature from birders of color. There's some great new books coming out. And then there's Christian Cooper. I mean, it's just this explosion of wonderful material for teaching about racism and privilege through birding. So that's about six weeks of my class, about half the class. It's really integrated because- you have if you step outside, you have to think about what privileges you have if you're not afraid. What's the favorite bird you've seen? Oh dear. Well, I always say when my students ask me that, I say it's the bird I'm staring at at this moment, right? Yeah. So I'm looking at my feeders right now out the window because of course I can bird while I write. I'm in my writing studio and there are no birds. So <laughs> um, but but I did do a study that's mentioned in the book, Kim. Mm -hmm about gray catbirds. Yep. And that's because uh, when I moved to Madison, I didn't even know what a gray catbird was. Again, I was a new birder. There was one in our backyard that was very, very funny. And there, I tell the story in the book of how this bird helped me feel at home and helped me laugh and sort of calmed me down. And when I learned that gray catbirds migrated every fall from Madison to South Central America or Mexico or the Deep South, it's like, wow, that bird and I have gone on the same life journey, except this bird is doing it every year, right? Where does it go? And that question, where does he go? 
turned into part of my dissertation and a full-blown geolocation research project that went on for three summers and involved several people. Thanks to my uh, avian ecology advisor, Dr. Anna Pigeon, who's one of the stars of my book and is an amazing researcher and who mentored me because I didn't know anything. And she taught me, you know, how to handle the birds and, and uh, collect the data. And she was out there in Warner Park in Madison with me three summers catching catbirds and other birds too. I saw a catbird uh, on my run the other day, actually, along the Hudson River. And I thought of you. Yeah, I saw a catbird and I saw a northern mocking, a very plump northern mockingbird. What is one lesson that you take with you always as you've gone on to successive classroom experiences with birding to change the world, the course? What is one lesson that you take with you from your first group of Warner Park kids besides, I'm assuming, rolling down a hill? Yeah. Well, I was thinking about that yesterday when we met with the kids to start the new semester. And yes, that first group, I learned so much. I was on such a steep learning curve. I made so many mistakes. I did everything wrong practically until the kids rolled me down the hill. The main lesson the children taught me was to listen to them, just listen to them and and to ask them questions, really to approach them as I approached anybody I interviewed as a journalist to kind of be an anthropologist. And I started going when I was in Madison, I was working with kids from a middle school and I started going once a week to the middle school lunches. And it was weird, you know, the teachers, they liked me and everything, but they'd look at me kind of weird because I'd go into the lunchroom, big, huge, noisy lunchroom, so noisy. Oh my God, deafening. And I scrunched down and sit in the little plastic bucket chair with the kids at the table, you know, and I just listen like, What's up, you know, kids? What are they talking about? And I did that every week for for years. And I learned so much. But the, the lesson they taught me was, besides listening, was that these clubs, these birding, after-school birding clubs that I've, been, that I've been doing now for years, it has to be their club. It has to have their culture. And so I might have, a, I have a model, you know, and it's in the book and it's in my dissertation. It's, it's in my head. But every every time I do the club, like yesterday when we started again, it has to be what those kids want, not what I want. And so they're going to have new ways of doing things. They're going to invent their own rituals. And I tell my students, we have to wait a few weeks and see how they want to do this. You know, we have certain, we just have a couple of rules, like don't die. The kids always laugh when I say that, right? Stay alive, right? Don't go near the river. That's number one rule. And the other is be kind, but you know, that, that would take a bit of unpacking. So yeah, it can't be, oh, we're coming in, we're UVM, University of Vermont, this is our club, you're going to do this this way, you're going to learn this. And I tell my students, we are not birding evangelists. If that kid wants to talk about Fortnite for three hours, suck it up. That's what you're going to do. Go go back and play Fortnite or whatever it is. And then next week you can talk to them about that. But if they don't want to hear about the sparrows or the falcons or whatever, so what? You are there to listen to them and to build a relationship first. That's what the children taught me. Because I went in there thinking, I'm going to teach ornithology light, and I'm just going to stuff these little 6th, 7th, and 8th graders' heads with bird facts. And they're going to spout them out. And everybody's going to think I'm such a great teacher. Of course, that was a total failure. They rolled me down the hill. And then I was like, okay, okay, kids, I get it. 
I still am getting it. That's really, that's really great. And it also much, I think, like the idea of birdsong, right? Like that also empowers sixth, seventh and eighth graders or fourth and fifth graders, however young the school kids are, that also teaches them the importance of voice, right? And the empowerment of voice and that they, they do have one. And, and quite frankly, they should have one. Yes, that is probably my number one goal as a teacher in in the college and with the kids. I love helping my students get published. I mean, that's how I started as a teacher. I, I stumbled into a women's prison as a volunteer and ended up teaching writing. And I, I loved seeing my byline. But when I helped my prison students get published and they saw their bylines for the first time, that changed my life. It's like, I want to do more of this. This feels so, this is transformative. And the kids, they speak up. They are not. And we we start and end every session. Yesterday was the same with a sharing circle. Um, and it's to get the kids to speak. And some of them don't want to at first. They're very shy. But by the end of the semester, every kid has something to say. And, and the teachers report that in school, they start to speak up in class. When we hear from the teachers or the principal or the superintendent that we're really making a difference and we're helping some of the kids come out of their shells stand a little taller, have some confidence. Maybe they won't be a birder. So what? They'll go on and do something else. So I just have one more question for you. And it's a question that we ask all of the guests on our podcast. Uh, since this podcast is primarily for uh, teachers, who is your favorite teacher? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> threw me a curveball. I didn't know I was going to get that one. Wow. I mean, my second, my first and second grade teacher, her name was Mrs. Beverly Kerr. Um, I have a photo of her, just to, I'll show you. It's a photo of her with her arms around me. And I show oh. it to students. Yeah. yeah. That's in California. And she was sort of one of those legendary first and second grade teachers, right? My parents had just come from Ireland and then I was born and uh, we moved into sort of wealthy area. My mom, uh, they, my parents worked for a wealthy couple and my mom was their maid and my dad was their ranch manager. So I went to this local elementary school and I didn't get along with my kindergarten teacher. Didn't like her and she didn't like me. She thought I was a little criminal. That's what she told my mom. My mom was horrified. Immigrant mother made, you know, she wants her daughter to succeed and the kindergarten teacher hates her daughter. And I was the evil kid that hid behind the door and would come out and scare her and stuff. I don't know why. I just didn't like her, but she didn't like me. When I got into first grade, the kindergarten teacher had put me in the lowest reading group. And the very first day, Mrs. Kerr had us all read out loud. And she said, "Why? what are you doing in this group? And she immediately put me in the highest group. And it was a class thing. I was going to a school with a lot of very wealthy kids, children of doctors and lawyers. Um, and I think about that with the kids I work with now today, right? How you can be put on a track when you're just a tiny child, right? Um, and she put me on another track immediately from the first day. And she was beloved. But I've had so many wonderful teachers. I mean, piano teachers, yoga teachers. It's not just in the classroom. My choir director right now, I'm in a massive community choir. I was in choir Tuesday night watching him, his enthusiasm. And so he inspires you to want to go home and practice and to love the music. Verity's Requiem, you know, I'd never heard of it before. To want to learn more about why did this guy write this and what was happening in his life. And so how a teacher can infect you with passion and love for learning. Well, Trish, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome, Kim.